Welcome to Smith Weekly Discussions, an occasional program for our readers and listeners of Smith Weekly Research. Please note this program is a private discussion and everything contained herein is for entertainment and educational purposes only. With that, we hope you're in a comfortable position, along with your favorite beverage, to enjoy the discussion. We remind our audience to examine the show notes attached to each of our shows to better understand how our program functions. Before we get into our discussion today, we want to say thanks for questions coming from our audience at Smith Weekly, including Brett L., Nick J., The Yellow Cake Advocate, at Surf Ski Snow, and Diego N. Justin Hewn, better known by some as Uranium Insider, is our guest today. Justin is the founder of UraniumInsider.com, a dedicated website set up to provide commentary on the uranium market. You can learn more by checking out UraniumInsider.com. Justin, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me, Andrew. Really uh, an honor to be here with you today. So Justin, let's get into it. Tell us a bit about yourself. Give us some background. Um, and then tell us why you decided to st uh, set up an outlet focused on uranium. Sure, yeah. Um, I'm essentially a, a private retail investor. I've been trading in the markets for almost a decade or so. Um, I'm 39 years old. I actually am a general contractor by trade and got into investing kind of as a hobby, um, like I mentioned, uh, um, almost a decade ago, and discovered um, Twitter, discovered uh, Seeking Alpha, and met some good people on there, um, including a, a good friend of mine who kind of took me under his wing who is a, uh, a momentum or a trend following trader. And so I, I stumbled around for a couple of years when I first started, mainly just self-taught. And as soon as I got into the trend following scene with, um, with this good friend of mine, who's an absolute master in that realm, uh, I got really into that. And I was doing swing trading, you know, holding, holding small positions for sometimes just a few days, but usually a few weeks, potentially a few months, and going purely on technicals, which I enjoyed. I, I enjoyed the mathematic aspect of it. Um, but there was one part of it that never really kind of aligned with me, which was uh, kind of uh, a blatant and intentional ignoring the fundamentals. And I, st I kind of started to drift away uh, a number of years into, into trading from that ethic and and getting more into technicals and or excuse me fundamentals and just started to, to combine fundamentals with technicals so still looking for those trend following breakouts but ideally having uh, a fundamentally strong story and company underneath that technical breakout and something really clicked for me when i started doing that uh, my success rate started to go up as far as the number of winning positions versus losing positions and around, it was in 2016 that I first heard of the, the uranium investing thesis. I believe it was a, a podcast from uh, Frank Curzio, the uh, Wall Street Unplugged, and he had Jordan Trimble from Sky Harbor Resources on. And he discussed and explained the whole thesis and the situation in the industry pretty well. And I don't even really know why, but there was something very fascinating to me about, you know, this was the first I had really heard of contrarian investing. And there was something about being right and very early that just seemed extremely low stress to me. Just having the time to to do deeper research into something, to slowly accumulate positions based on finding strong companies. And I, I just, for whatever reason, kind of fell in love with, with the entire 
uh, thesis and with the story. And the industry is insanely complicated and fascinating. And 2017, I just I started the Uranium Insider Twitter handle. Um, I believe it was late 2017. I had already positioned myself or somewhat um, in in some Uranium Juniors and. I mainly wanted to just kind of put myself into a place in that community, which at that time was very small on Twitter. Um, I think John Quakes even had less than 2,000 followers at the time, um, but he was still uh, even already uh, the biggest name in the sector, at least on Twitter, and just uh, really kind of fell in love with the community, uh, with the whole story, and it's just gone from there. I've really, really appreciated being able to communicate with people all over the world in real time and it's it's just been a wonderful experience and that kind of brings us up to today i suppose congratulations to you on coming across it you actually remember when you first heard about uranium <laughs> whereas i can't uh, but uh, no that's fantastic and uh interesting part uh i want to want to ask you just a question that kind of came up as you were talking sure how do you how do you see trading today, and is it is it still a part of what you do as your investment strategy? What's your thought on trading, and kind of what place does it have in your strategy and portfolio? I still do um, trend follow trade, and um, I actually I think it's an important part of my strategy because as as many of us have learned, there's a pretty great opportunity cost in contrarian investing. Um, it's not necessarily the most difficult thing to be right about a thesis, but to time it at the absolute perfect bottom and, and see only upside is damn near impossible, especially with uranium. And so I have um, I have separate accounts for different styles of investing. Um, my, my fundamental investing account that's predominantly uranium, there's some other battery metals and a, a bit, bit of precious metals there as well, um, but that's in one account. And then I have another account that I trend follow trade with as well. And it's a smaller position, uh, a smaller percentage of my total portfolio, but I I like to be able to do both. Um, I've I've yet to position uh, another account, but I'd like to at some point in the next couple of years, which is essentially like a a blue chip dividend paying, you know, buy and hold kind of dollar cost averaging account. So there's something that I would add money to that pays dividends that I just never look at for decades. There's something that I look at frequently to trade technical breakouts. And then there's the fundamental investing. So different styles, I think I think there's a place for that. And I think that having different accounts for those different styles is important to, to separate that. I think, Justin, that you have, uh, there's a place in there for that because, especially for me in, in a liquid markets, uh, mm -hmm. there's a place for, you know, uh, stock trading and option trading and so forth in, in more liquid markets. Now, for me, myself, I have not yet to really figure out uh, an incredible efficient strategy for trading illiquid uranium stocks um, hmm. hence hence we uh, we don't uh, do it or or do anything in that regard uh, because it's just too difficult to time and and one of the things that i've realized early on was why we trade such an important situation that can pay more than we could ever imagine in a in a bull market why even risk the position to be fumbling around? So there's always that thought about having a core position in uranium because mm -hmm. if we were just there trying to trade a little bit of this move and that move, which you've had plenty of opportunities over the last two to three years to do yeah. so, yes. uh, to me, it's like, well, I just don't want to risk losing that real full upside that can happen over a couple year period. 
And so, so that's why I've tried to be hands off with that and just keep the trading stuff and strategies, which, you know, we do a little bit of that with one of our option services over in kind of mm -hmm. more liquid markets, even though it's quite quiet and, and uh, so forth. But there is a lot of other strategies that can be applied that work pretty well in liquid markets. So I think that's, that's yeah. an important piece of it. I want to move on and go over to uranium. Actually, before we get to that, I actually want to sure. ask you something else that's kind of more just general market related. How do you look at the overall markets and what is your real approach to evaluating whether your capital is worthy of a specific sector or an investment idea? Good question. Um, I guess, if, how do I figure if it's worthy? Uh, it just, for me, it's my own personal conviction. Um, and that would just depend on the on the market itself and how much research I've done into that market. Um, so for me, since I've been focused more on, I guess you could call it resource contrarian investing over the past couple of years, I haven't really dug into uh, the case for a a broad market. You know, let's call it S and P 500 recession or continued bull market. Um, to the extent where I feel super confident in in uh, investing in that for the long term or shorting it for that matter. So for me, it just comes down to conviction. Um, I've spent enough time digging into the uranium thesis and um, really trying to find reasons why not to invest. And I've, I've been pretty honest with myself about that. Um, and so my conviction is strong there. And if, if it's not just a technical trade, if it's more of a fundamental investment, I think it really is all about purity of conviction. A lot of that has to do with, um, I mean, you can't replace your own research, but um, being in the position that I found myself in um, on Twitter and um, through my, my email newsletter, I've, I've just had some phenomenal connections with really, really smart people that are way smarter than myself that are doing um, similar research and deeper than myself. And so I put a lot of trust in that. You know, that's, that's a huge value that you give to everybody along with people like um, Mike Alkin and uh, and Malcolm and Brandon, uh, just knowing knowing that somebody like Mike Alkin, who's managed uh, uh, billions, and and he's done it on the short side. And if you know anything about short selling, it takes incredible uh, deep fundamental research to really have a strong conviction to short something, especially something like uh, Tesla, for example, who ha that has you know, pretty positive sentiment in not necessarily in the stock market, but amongst consumers. So for somebody like Mike Alkin to, to say that he's never seen uh, an opportunity like this in his lifetime, like you really have to take that seriously. Uh, and so, so for me, it just comes down to conviction. Um, as far as the broad market goes, you know what, I really don't know. I mean, it's pretty long in the tooth, but at the same time, I also think we could be in a secular bowl that grinds up for a lot longer than people are are willing to uh, to recognize. So there's there's plenty of signs out there in, uh, that are pointing to uh, potential impending recession. And of course, at some point, it has to cycle back down. But I don't have a strong enough conviction to uh, to to short it. And I just I, I invest in what I feel like I know really well when it comes to fundamentals. Well said, and some good points that you make. I think that that's important. Uh, some pieces that you said there. Well, let's move on to uranium. Uh, what one factor really provided the spark for you to make the decision to get involved with the sector as an investment and speculation? Uh, the one factor, if I had to boil it down to one, it's that um, barring 
a like another huge shock to the demand side um, and a black swan of some kind, you know, another Fukushima, perhaps, God forbid, barring something like that, the price has to go up. It's not that it should go up. It's that it has to. And and that gives me a ton of conviction. Um, so if I had to boil it down to one thing, it's that. It's it's not necessarily predicting how high the price is going to go, when it's going up, but that it must. And and that gave me a lot of confidence to just to to buy good companies and hold them. I think that's a good piece, and and I think that really nails the high level shot at why people would need to consider it. Um, aside from all the other small stuff, you can get detailed and really dive in and and figure out a, many other things to. Uh, add to your conviction but that really kind of nails the, the high level piece of it and uh, sure. i think that's important that, that people see that and that's that's one piece that uh for myself really i can relate to as well that's that's the biggest chunk that starts to make you de uh, look deeper into it prepare your strategy your positions and so forth there's there's no doubt that uh it's a very simple reason on the high level of why Mm -hmm. It will go up, and so that's that's the the key part. Probably could have explained that a little bit better. I'm, I guess I'm assuming that most of your listeners are already aware of kind of the basic thesis, but the prices must go up because they're so low that nobody can make money mining it right now. I mean, even because Atomprom is about at break-even prices right now, and they're the lowest cost producer in the world. So we have a supply-demand shortage, um, a structural deficit of 50 to 60 million pounds, and growing. And unless the price goes up, there's no new supply coming online. So just to just to circle back, just in case there's folks that are new to the sector that that aren't aware of this thesis, that's kind of the basis of it. Absolutely, natural resources 101. Yep, absolutely. So I want to talk Cameco and Kazataprom for a moment. Should okay. investors look at these two big players for investment purposes, or should they be looking really at the junior market? Uh, really great question. Um, I, I think that for anyone to get into um, investing in this sector or or any sector for that matter, especially with resources, um, it really it really comes down to what their individual goals are as investors, um, how much money they're investing, um, their age, is this precious retirement money or is this a 25 year old with money that they could lose and be completely fine with. Um, so if you have a larger amount of capital to invest, if it's if your goal is capital preservation rather than potential upside, I think that the big names, the larger market cap companies like Cameco, like Kazatomprom, um, NextGen is up there, Fission, Denison, I think these are all really good options um, for for larger sums of money. And honestly, they're some of the only options if it's a really large sum of money. You know, some of the juniors are sitting five, 10, 15 million dollar market cap and very illiquid. So taking giant positions in those, you essentially have to do what you can in a private placement. But as far as Kazanoprom and Cameco specifically, I actually really like Cameco. I don't think it's just the big, boring company that's the obvious choice. I think that they're in a really good position. They have a lot of cash. They, uh, they have an absolute genius as a CEO who I think is doing a killer job running the company. And um, the chart is gorgeous from a technical perspective. I think Cameco is an amazing option um, right here, right now uh, to benefit. And it's also, you know, it's on the New York Stock Exchange. It's a higher market cap. And when institutional money finally does come into the sector more than it has already, which is uh, minimal, Cameco is one of the big options besides um, 
Kazatomprom or, or Yellow Cake or, or Geiger Counter, any of the, the ETFs or the pure plays. As far as investing in Kazatomprom, that's a little bit of a tough one because I actually have kind of an opposite thesis on it than most people are afraid of and uh, or fearing that they can ramp. Um, I actually think they might surprise at the downside. And we can get more into that um, further into the interview if you'd like. But it's hard for me to, uh, let's say, suggest an investment because Adam Prom, though it, it's obviously a massive global producer, and um, now that they're partially public, I think it is a decent option. Um, I'm sure that they will do just fine in the bull market. They clearly have have their production going. They have um, a, a pretty awesome dividend. So I don't think it's a bad option. I'm just a little bit unsure on how, if they do surprise to the downside, how the stock will react to that. Certainly for me, because Adaprom is not something I'm interested in. However, mm -hmm. with that said, if it gets cheap enough, everything gets right. back on the table. And so, true, so that's, true. that's a, that's a key, a key piece. I think that people should understand as well. I, I think there's better options. Uh, it's kind mm -hmm. of a making its way towards uh, potentially having some of the characteristics of a chemical, but it's not quite there yet. It's kind of in that twilight zone of uh, old, old traditions versus kind of this new listed company and, and some of the things mm. that go along with being a listed company. So we're kind of not right. really there yet in my, in my view, but right. let's talk about some of those other things. Uh, do you think on Kazataprom, mm -hmm. do you think they have the ability to flood the market with supply and prevent an extended uranium bull market? I would just first say that anything is possible. Um, with enough capital coming in, I suppose that they could ramp, but um, I don't think they will. And to answer the second half of that question, I think that if they did, I don't think it's going to kill the market either way. So it, it, for those two reasons, I, I believe it's not really a worry, um, at least not for me, from the from the digging that I've done. And I'm not a Kazatom Prom expert um, by any means, but I have done a, a bit of research. I wrote a piece on it in my newsletter. Um, a couple of months back that got some pretty good uh, traction. And I really think um, if you if you dig into the numbers a bit with Kazatomprom, you can kind of start to see a different story being revealed. And uh, you can see that their CapEx from 2000 to 2000, 2017 to 2018 has, in general, um, it first of all, it's dropped. And if you actually dig into the numbers, you can see that their well construction CapEx has uh, it has gone up slightly, um, but their sustaining capex has gone up a lot. So some of their main wells, you can actually see, um, it's taking more capital to keep them running. Um, and this might be obvious to anyone who understands the ISR mining. You know, you drill a well, you you inject a solution, you draw that out of another um, well that that's drilled a distance away, and you and you dilute that solution underground. You pull it up out of the ground, and so you can imagine. When you first turn on the switch and start start ISR mining in a particular area, the solution, the, uh, the 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 uranium that you're pulling out of the ground is going to be the strongest concentration, and it just declines from there essentially. So you have to continue to drill more and more wells and put more capex into it to to maintain production. So that's one piece of it. Um, there's other little signs like they downgraded their workforce by almost 20% from 2017 to 2018. I don't know exactly what that means, but it means something. That's a significant drop in, in their workforce. They have 5,000 people almost. Um, you can also see uh, their stated 
maximum production is right around 70 million pounds. And uh, this year they're, they're aiming to produce just above 50. And they peaked in uh, 2016 at 55 million pounds, roughly. And their stated production um, on their website is 70 million pounds a year. So if they went absolutely all out with massive capital expenditure at the, at the expense of their shareholders, by the way, who are just now um, starting to dig into that dividend, um, they would have to put an incredible amount of CapEx to ramp. And it's gonna take a lot of CapEx just to keep at these levels. So if they ramp to 70, even their own models show that it almost immediately declines and it doesn't go back up. And so what we can assume from that is that Kazakhstan is not a, uh, an, an, an unlimited, unfathomable deep well of uranium. It's, it's a limited resource for them. And the other part of that that's I find absolutely fascinating, I really, if anybody has not listened to Jeff Coimba's interview with Mike Alkin on his podcast, it's, it's a mind blower um, to get into the whole situation with, with Russia's strategy and that they own the production in, in Kazakhstan. Um, this is the number one strategic resource of uranium for Russia. And so I don't really see going on them, them ramping and, and just putting out at any cost as much uranium as they possibly can. I don't think that's strategically smart for them. And if we step back into the past decade, um, there's, a, there's a few pieces to put together, um, and there's one piece that I want to mention that I have not heard anyone talk about. And a lot of, some of this has come from my friend on Twitter. If you follow him, if you don't follow him, you absolutely should. It's SNSU308. He's very quiet. He doesn't post very often, but when he does, you should pay attention because he knows this data inside and out. This Russian strategy with Kazakhstan and the, the U.S. uranium market is, is pretty profound. And over the course of a few years, right around 2010, you have a number of things happening. Um, first, you have the Uranium One deal that Jeff Klenda speaks about. Um, I'm not an expert on understanding exactly what this deal meant. And if you listen to his interview with Mike Galkin, he goes super into detail. But essentially, um, uh, Rosatom, was uh, Rosatom from Russia, they, the Russian state-owned uranium production uh, company, they were approved to take um, controlling interest in Uranium One, which owned a bunch of U.S. uranium assets. At the time, it was the largest holding of uranium assets in the U.S. So that was one thing, um, the approval of the Uranium One deal. Uh, secondly, that's right around the time that Kazatomprom ramped massively. So you went from 2009 to 2010, an 8 million pound jump. And from there, you've got five million pound jump, a five million pound jump, four million pounds, three million pounds. And over the course of five years, they've jumped about 30 million pounds. It's a massive, massive ramping. And that was all cheap uranium that flooded into the market. A lot of that came to the States. So that's kind of piece two of that. A third piece would be uh, Rose Adams strategy that they're expanding now of building reactors um, globally. So they're doing this thing now where they're, they're financing reactor builds. Um, they're doing, they're actually doing the construction. They are manning and operating the reactors and they're supplying the fuel for, for a number of decades for the life of the, of the reactor, which is 50, 60 years, potentially more. And obviously that's a profitable, profitable enterprise to be doing, to be getting into. But imagine having a state owned enterprise such as Rosatom controlling the energy in a number of cities around the world. It's quite frightening. 
and pretty incredible when it comes to political leverage. Fourth piece of this that very few people understand is that the United States has a lot more uranium than most people know, than most people know about. Um, are you are you familiar with uh, the Breccia pipes in Arizona, the Arizona Strip in the northern part of Arizona? Yes. So, do you know how much uranium is there? No. This might blow your mind. <laughs> okay, so there's conservative estimates of a billion pounds of uranium, and the higher range of the, of the estimates is close to three billion pounds. This is in northern Arizona. This is under a current mining ban. Earlier in the 2000s, they were banning new claims in the area on and off, and in 2000, I believe it was 2012, Obama administration uh, put in a 20-year mining ban in northern Arizona. Now, the crazy part about this is that there's allegations of Russian funding and Russian influence on this decision to, man, to ban the mining in that area. So we have a potential of billions of pounds of uranium in northern Arizona that's under a mining ban by the Obama administration right around the time that they approved the uranium one deal and that Kazadam Prom is ramping like crazy, effectively killing the U.S. market. Um, long story long, I don't believe they're going to ramp and flood the market. I think the damage has been done. They killed the market in the U.S., and that's something that the Section 232 position, uh, petition is, is trying to um, amend. But um, the damage has been done. Russia, Russia is leading the pack on, on reactor builds. There is a, a, my, a, a, a ban on the, on the largest resource in the United States. And there's a handful of people and companies lobbying to have that removed, but there's strong opposition by the locals in that area. So who knows if it's going to be removed? But I think that Trump can can remove the ban um, if he chooses to do so. So I'm watching that closely. But that's kind of the the grand picture that I'm looking at with Kazadamprom um, and how they've affected the U.S. the U.S. market and whether or not they're even going to it's even in their best interest to to, to ramp up production and quote unquote, kill the market. I just don't see it happening. I think the bulk of the money and, and the, the history, the history will show this, the bulk of the money is really in the plants and in the control, the energy control. Mm. So, so if you control the plants and you're able to sell these turnkey packages that have all components needed to operate these uh, plants and, and emerging economies mm. and, and offering up the technology to countries who don't have it, all the money is there because not only do they get a nice fat hog on on the financing end of this things but they also right. control everything and so i think really at the end of the day all the money points towards getting these plant deals including even if you have to sacrifice the price of uranium to get mm -hmm. there and mm -hmm. so because it's, it's nothing in compared to these total plants around the world and the construction and the money and capital involved with the plants that's mm -hmm. where the control lies now on the other side there's no doubt that there is a uranium abundance in the United States and throughout the world. But mm -hmm. at the end of the day, it's those billions of pounds. At what cost do you need to get that out into a can and onward to the fuel cycle? And uh, so right. I think that's the key the key part there. But very interesting sure. points you brought up about Kazataprom, the Uranium One deal, which incidentally, the Uranium One deal, not only was there some some acts that you could certainly point towards the U.S. and there's some control issues that had occurred with that deal. That was part of it. But I think also the other part 
the the control of the uranium one assets in Kazat and uh, Kazakhstan mm-hmm. were were also a very large part of that move, mm-hmm. and so it was really kind of getting getting two birds with one stone, if you right. will. Right. And so I think it's very fascinating what happened and some of the points that you brought up. I think people have missed, and uh, there's a lot going on behind the scenes, in my view. Um, right. One more question on Kazataprom. Uh huh. And I think you might actually just have covered part of this, but sure. what is your position on, obviously we know they're the lowest cost producer uh-huh. uh, and we already, you had explained why that is, but why do you think that this position will change and does it go back to the sustaining CapEx? Well, first, the first part of that with the low cost production, I mean, obviously um, a state run company or at least used to be state run, this mostly still state run. Um, is not necessarily look, keeping an eye on profits. Um, I'm sure that's part of the picture to maintain um, the operation, but I, I think the writing is on the wall, the, the impetus for that massive production. Um, also, ISR mining is inherently cheaper for the most part if the geology is right, um, but there's other, there's other uh, things that we can make assumptions about, and actually there's some data on with things like um, uh, environmental regulations. You know, if you throw all environmental stewardship out the window, you can you can mine much cheaper. Now, there's data um, of Kazatom uh, Prom essentially dumping their wastewater directly into the Caspian Sea for a number of years. Um, that appeared to have stopped in 2018. I don't know if that's because they went public last year, but you know, that's just one example of who who really knows um, what sort of regulations that they are able to to work around or they're not even there um, that will allow them to produce much cheaper than essentially the rest of the world. So that's part of, of, of the cost, um, the, the cost part of their production. But as far as whether or not they're going to ramp, I think the CapEx is really the big one. Um, it's going to take an incredible amount of money for them to just maintain production. And if you dig into the data, uh, which is on their reports, it's, it's pretty clear. And so um, can they, ramp i'm sure that they can if if this if the state chooses to throw um, a bottomless amount of money at it then i'm sure that they can ramp and maybe they will a little bit when the prices rise Um, but i just don't see it as a market killer it's not a concern of mine at this point right and let's not even talk about the lag time that's involved as well right um so i want to move on what okay. do you see as the primary key to this uh, market kind of taking the initial confirming move upward? And when do you see that happening? Um, I would say that it's already happened. And um, the primary key that I'm watching is the SWU price of uranium. Um, SWU, I'm going to try to explain this as best I can with um, my non-nuclear engineer understanding of it. Because I've had a hard time wrapping my mind around it not being a nuclear engineer, not working in the, in the uranium or the nuclear industry. Um, so SWU price, SWU stands for separate of work unit, and it essentially is a price that reflects the energy and the amount of effort that goes into separating the U-235 and the U-238 isotopes from the natural uranium. And to, to, to kind of just briefly explain this, my understanding of the fuel cycle. So the, the uranium is mined out of the ground, it's converted to UF6, uranium hexafluoride, um, which at the conversion facility, it then makes its way to the enrichers, which um, uh, 
when it arrives at the enrichers, it's 0.7% U-235. And it's the U-235 isotope that they're trying to enrich for nuclear fuel because it's fissile. It's the one that actually has a, a nuclear reaction of the two isotopes. Now, the two isotopes are only 1% different in mass. And the way that they separate these isotopes in order to actually enrich a larger percentage of the U-235 isotope is by spinning them at incredible speeds in a centrifuge. Um, and so they spin them from that 0.7% U2, U-235 up to uh, 3.5 to 4, sometimes a little bit higher percentage, based on the requirements of each individual reactor. So each, in, each reactor will have a different requirement of enrichment. So to spin natural uranium from 0.7% U-235 up to 3.5%, let's say, takes a lot of energy. It takes a lot more energy to do that than it does to squeeze out of the tails. Okay, so when they're enriching the natural uranium up to nuclear fuel, you end up with leftover material that is somewhat depleted. And it sounds like there's a, a certain level of effort of enriching uh, that will bring the tails down to about 0.3%. So down from 0.7 to 0.3. And over the years of enriching nuclear fuel, um, especially during the bull market when there was a lot of contracting happening and a lot of spot purchases as well, um, what was going on was uh, that all of the enrichers accumulated massive, massive amounts of tails that were all in this 0.3, 0.35 range of U-235 isotope. So when demand starts to fall for nuclear fuel um, in the bear market specifically, um, what the enrichers did is they had all of this excess capacity. So these centrifuges supposedly are very difficult and expensive to shut down, to stop running. So rather than go through that process, the enrichers will take the tails and they'll re-enrich them, bring them back up to 0.7%, which essentially is the natural uranium, and they sell that back into the spot market. And so the effort to, to enrich 0.3% tails up to 0.7% natural uranium is much less than the effort that it takes to enrich the natural uranium up to 3.5% plus for nuclear fuel. I hope this all makes sense. I'm, I'm doing my best to explain this to my understanding. Yeah, keep going. <clears throat> um, okay, so as you can imagine the demand for nuclear fuel falling, the, in, the, the enrichers used up more and more of their capacity to enrich the tails rather than the nuclear fuel naturally that uh, and sell that into the spot market so that's a sec that's considered secondary supply and is also called underfeeding so this is natural uranium coming into the market from the enrichers not from a mine not from the conversion facilities from the enrichers themselves so they effectively acted like another mine and um there's the, the estimates for how much that supply is it sounds like it's pretty difficult to pin that down Mike Alkin has said that it's somewhere between 20 and 25 million pounds a year. Um, others have said it's more like uh, 10 million pounds a year. Either way, it's a lot. It's a significant mine, essentially. So as the SWU price falls, what that signifies is there's less and less demand for nuclear fuel, and the enrichers are using more and more of their capacity to underfeed. Now, the SWU price topped out in the around the $160 mark, and that was in uh, 2000. And, Let's see, I think it was 2007 that swoop price topped and it kind of flatlined for a couple of years, if I recall correctly. Here we go. Yeah, it topped out in 2009, excuse me. 
Um, it, it was flat for about a year. It had a tiny recovery after falling, um, and that was in 2011. It seemed like there was that would signify a resuming of nuclear fuel purchasing. And after Fukushima, SWU price has literally gone straight down with zero recovery from 2011 till last summer, August 2018. Basically, what that means is demand for uranium fuel has dropped and dropped and dropped and dropped and dropped. And the, and the uh, enrichers have done nothing but increase their capacity with underfeeding with this unfathomable amount of tails that they have built up over the years of enriching on the way up. So SWU price bottomed out at about 30, I think it was 32, $33, maybe $35, somewhere in the mid, low to mid 30s. And that was in August. It has since then rebounded and gone up in a straight line. It's now at $46, I believe, $45. It's rebounded in a straight line from last summer. And I believe what that signifies is that nuclear fuel demand is coming back to the enrichers. It can also signify that the tails are becoming more and more depleted and it's taking more and more effort to bring them up to that natural uranium level of 0.7% uh, U-235. So this is a massive, massive uh, point to make and for everyone to recognize. And if you compare the SWU chart, SWU chart and you lay on top of it the spot price chart, you can see that in 2016, uh, 2017, and even 2018 has been a bit of a head fake in spot price. You ran up to almost $30 back down to 20, ran up to almost 30 back down to 22, ran up to almost 30, we dropped back to the 25. All of those head fakes happened with an exception of the last one, 2016, 2017 head fakes in spot. SWU was still falling. And I've talked to a number of people in the industry. Um, you know, I, I talked to a couple of CEOs last year who basically were like, yeah, we're not really sure about the market. We're not really sure if it's turning around. You know, we're watching SWU. And, uh, you know, gave me a brief um, kind of explanation of what it was. I didn't understand it very much at the time. And I didn't really pay attention to that. But now in hindsight, I've talked to these same people a year later and you can hear the excitement in their voice. You can hear the confidence that the market has turned. And the fact that SWU price is going up at all means that something has changed. It means that this time it's different. So that's giving me great confidence in the overall market is seeing that rebounding of SWU. So if you have a different understanding of it, I, or a better way to explain it, I, I absolutely would love to hear because you might actually understand it better than I. You've done a pretty nice job of putting that together. I think that me personally, uh, as I think we've said before, is I, I wish that SWU would stay down as low as possible for a longer period of time. And of course, that that's kind of self-serving for the for the fact that maybe maybe we'll get some some lower equity prices to to buy more. Right. Uh, but no, I think I think most of the stuff there was was pretty good. And I think that people need to pay attention to the SWU market. And right now, I am in agreement that uh, an increasing SWU price like what we've seen, even with a little bit of corrections along the way, is certainly a leading foreseen indicator of where we were will be going with the spot and long-term price <clears throat> as we continue. And so I think that's that's a good piece. Um, I want to move on here because I've got some other stuff I want to cover for the sake of time. Sure. Um, what is your sector investment strategy? What do you move into? When, why, and how do you get into these equities? Um, my own personal strategy 
um, and this is not necessarily what I would recommend, but it's what I'm doing based on my own place as an investor. So I, I feel like I'm investing the amount of capital that I'm willing to risk. I'm willing to take on more risk. Um, I feel like if I were to lose some of that capital, that would be okay. And I'm willing to risk that to the upside. So the majority of my uranium investments, uh, investments are in juniors. Um, and like I mentioned earlier, that's not necessarily what I what I would suggest. And if you're investing large amounts of money and it's something that um, if you have less risk tolerance, I wouldn't necessarily suggest going all in on juniors. Um, juniors have their downside um, as well, uh, but the upside is considerably greater than, than the larger uh, market cap equities. Um, the when, I would say the when, gosh, I mean, now, I, 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 for lack of a better word, I, and you know, the beautiful thing about the swoop price is nobody watches it. The market doesn't watch it. It's just the insiders in the industry that watch it. And so they're all watching spot and spot has gone up and down and up and down. That's giving us, that's given us all some really great sales. And I don't think it's going to last, but part of the when is I would say based on technicals. So if you if you can fundamentally determine a company that you would like to own, you know this is this is going to be a, a longer bull market, I believe. Um, I'm I see this as a three to five year or more uh, investment. And with that said, if you if you can determine the companies you'd like to invest in, then you look at the charts and you can try to determine whether or not now is a good entry. Um, and that's if your conviction is great for a company. Um, buying when it's down is smart as a contrarian investment and that goes against you know your, your, most investors natural reaction um, it takes you, you kind of have to go against your gut to do that but I think um, gosh I mean th there's a couple of strong charts out there but for the most part the sector is still really beat up um, some fundamentally strong companies are at or near you know 52 week lows some of them even at all-time lows but there are stronger companies out there as far as the charts go. So the when, the when you could you can try to work with technicals and look for a good entry. Um, but some of these juniors, especially the illiquid ones, they move so quickly when even a small amount of money comes into them. So at the risk of getting a perfect entry, um, doing FOMO, you know, fear of missing out buying is not necessarily suggested. Um, so it, the when is, is a harder one. I've put a lot more time into the what, but what I've done, like I mentioned, I've, I've been aware of this thesis for a couple of years now, for I guess three years now, and I've essentially dollar cost averaged into the companies that I've known to be strong um, that I'd like to hold for you know five years plus. Um, I didn't start out with a large amount of capital to just take very big positions. I've essentially, um, as I've been able to save money and earn money, I've put that into my, into my picks. And so that's been an easier way to do it. If um, when I when I have money in my account and I see one of my top picks is down, I'll buy. That's been my strategy. Um, okay. And so far, it's worked out really well for me. Um, my, my portfolio right now is actually in decent shape, and I think that's that's really worked out well for me. So you covered really the why on the juniors. Why you get into the mm -hmm. juniors is really mm -hmm. for that extra right. extra right. pop. And so, so you got that part, and then the when, you know, you're talking, uh, and that also kind of covers some of the how is is 
you're looking at technicals, you're looking at sentiment, you're looking at deploying capital at different times. You mentioned uh, you're, you're saving and, and earning, adding money as, as time goes on. So all of that really fits into the whole piece. Now, let, mm-hmm. me, let me go to the next part. We've sure. got a question, uh, and they, they would like to know what, compare and contrast the two, what do you like as far as similarities and differences? And those two uh-huh. companies that came in from the question was Laramide mm-hmm. and Encore. Um, mm-hmm. Which would, would you like to just discuss those and then, and then cover sure. anything else you'd like to cover there? Sure. Yeah, that's fine. I'm happy to share about those two companies. Um, and just to circle back a little bit with juniors too, I, I don't feel like I did a very good job of explaining why I like juniors. Um, and not all juniors. Um, you have to be really careful with juniors. The, your biggest enemy with a junior mining company is dilution. Um, is the, the company being so small that in order to raise capital, they issue more shares. It dilutes the shares that you hold. Um, every time they do that, they're worth less and less of a percentage of the company, and all of them do it. And it's not necessarily bad, but if you're looking into a company, that's one thing that you absolutely need to look into. So how I suggest you do that is go onto the website, go onto the news feed for the company, look into the past year, two, three, four even, go go back to all of their private placements that they've done, all of their raises that they've done, and read and see the reasoning for it. And if the reasoning is general operational expenses, then you better dig into the books because <laughs> you, you don't know what they're diluting shareholders for. And if it's for bloated salaries, and there are definitely juniors out there doing this, there's there's a couple that, gosh, there's one in particular, that all they've done is mine shareholders for a decade. And and it's it's really bad news. <laughs> but if you look like, okay, so Laramide, let's talk on Laramide for a second. Um, if you look, they did a raise in 2016. This was the absolute bottom of the bear market. Um, their share price at the time, I don't even recall what it was. It was near the lows. It's not ideal to dilute near the lows because you have to issue more shares to raise the same amount of capital. But they did this raise, and the reasoning for the raise was they they practically stole this property from uranium resources. Um, it's the, uh, let's see, I believe, is it the Church Rock and Crown Point, or am I mixing them up? It's an ISR property in New Mexico. Uh, it's close to 50 million pounds. It's an excellent, excellent asset. Um, it's in a good jurisdiction. Laramide has it almost fully permitted. They've got one permit left. They already have a license for the ISR processing facility. And Mark Henderson, the CEO of Laramide, is a boss. And he he stole this from a uranium resources for a few million dollars. So that dilution was phenomenally good for shareholders because it's now it's now their number one asset in the States. They have some massive assets in Australia, but they're fo- focusing on their assets in the States because they're they're easier to get rolling, get into production. I like both Laramide and Encore, to be completely honest. It's hard for me to pick one over the other. Um, Encore has a potential catalyst, the breccia pipes that I mentioned earlier. They have by far the largest number of claims in that area. And so if they open up that mining ban, Encore is going to be a massive, massive winner. Um, so Laramide doesn't have any assets in Arizona, to my knowledge. Their main assets in the in the states are ISR assets in New Mexico. But they're both, I mean, Laramide, they did not dilute barely at all for close to a decade in the bear market. And that's just phenomenal. You know, both of these companies have little to no salaries. Encore has a phenomenal team with zero salaries. Just unbelievable. And, and they're both operating their companies very conservatively and very intelligently. 
And um, Encore also has some ISR assets in New Mexico, just right next door to Laramide. I see it possible that they might work together somehow. Um, if we see the Iranian price recover, which we're all expecting at this point. So it's hard for me to choose one or the other. I like them both. I think those are two great examples of juniors with very competent management, with minimal necessary dilution, um, with good inside ownership. Mark Henderson participates in practically every private placement they do. Um, they have strong institutional ownership, especially Encore. Um, uh, Sasham Cove, L2, are owners of Encore. Um, Pat DiCapo with Power One owns approximately 15% of the company. Energy Fuels has a position. So um, that's another thing with juniors is look into who owns it. Um, anytime you start to dig into a company, it's just look into management. The jockey, not the horse, is the classic. Obviously, a good horse helps, but uh, without a good jockey, the horse is useless. And um, Gosh, yeah, just dig into management, you know, read as much as you possibly can about the CEO, uh, the chief uh, of, the, of the board, um, anyone involved in the company who's kind of at the top of the management. Important to find out what they've done before, what's their track record, um, dig into dilution, why are they diluting, has it been good or bad for shareholders. Um, one example of that, and this is not necessarily a junior, but Uranium Energy Corp, UEC, um, they a, a couple of years back had told shareholders that they were cashed up for um, one to two years and in about eight or nine months they did another private placement for 20 million dollars with zero explanation as to why they raised the funds so they might surprise with some asset that they're not telling anybody about i don't really know the strategy behind that but man the company you better they better be able to communicate with shareholders why they're diluting because the shareholders are all they have to support them um, it's important to know why they're raising that money one other thing I thought I'd mention about juniors too is jurisdiction. I, I and this is just me personally. Um, I don't like to gamble on jurisdiction. So obviously, if if you do gamble on a jurisdiction play, the upside can be massive because it, there might be a predominance of the market that's just not giving the company credit. You know, there there are some jurisdiction plays out there with very good management with very little dilution. Um, that if um, that they're they're uh, let's say their, their main property that they're wanting to bring into production um, is currently not legally mined. They can't get permits for it. It's in some type of ban that the, the company is probably not gonna go anywhere. But if it does pass, you can see a massive upside. And you know, it's, it's more of a gamble and I understand why people might be into it. I, I don't like jurisdiction gambling, I just don't. So I like to see that a junior is has at least some assets and hopefully their best assets in a jurisdiction that is currently legal that they have already have some permits or they're in the process or it's likely that they will get permits um so i i preferred you know juniors with with a, a strong jurisdiction well i want to i want to cover uh, a couple of things there i thought you made some good highlighting points about some of the things that people should be looking for and how to kind of do a high level evaluation before you start to dig deep into some of these individual companies and names i want to talk jurisdiction for just a second before i sure. go to one other one other question and unfortunately uh, i misspoke earlier one mm. other uh, audience member did have another name which i want to bring up just to fulfill sure. that part um but jurisdiction which jurisdictions do you like 
when looking at the current jurisdictions that have the ability to produce and export uranium. So there's only a handful, but which mm -hmm. ones kind of uh, do you like, which you'd like to mention? Globally or U.S. specific? Globally. Globally. Countries. Um, gotcha. I think uh, the most obvious are uh, uh, Saskatchewan, Canada. Um, the Athabasca Basin has a long history of uranium production. And um, the other one would be Namibia, I think, are the number one and two jurisdictions. Um, and then within the United States, I would say uh, Utah is number one. They don't have a lot of uranium, but they have a little bit. Encore has a few million pounds there that uh, supposedly can be switched on in short notice, you know, six months to a year um, without even having started the process. Um, so Utah is good. Wyoming is good. Arizona is good, although... Uh, uh, Arizona is good in some areas with uranium. It's it's sketchy at the moment, but it's potential. I do see potential that at least part of that ban is lifted. Um, New Mexico historically has been good. I think it's going to take a little bit more work in New Mexico to get new mines up and running. But I think that the companies that own assets there are uh, competent in in finding solutions and, and creating win-win situations with the local communities there. Um, but yeah, clearly the Athabasca Basin, Saskatchewan, Canada, and I think uh, Namibia are probably the one and two for uranium production. I uh, I tend to agree. I, I like uh, certainly Canada has uh, big abilities. Uh, Namibia has uh, a, a lot of nice uh, features and abilities, uh, given that country has done a fantastic job of remaining stable and building out their economy properly in Africa. Uh, arguably now mm -hmm. the number the number one jurisdiction in Africa, hands down. Niger is uh, is right. interesting and has a has a history with the French, but when you have to compare apples to apples, uh, they don't compare. Namibia is without a doubt the number one jurisdiction in Africa now. South I Africa agree. has been cut out as a political jurisdiction that was solid for mining. That's becoming uh, less so today. So Namibia is my uh, favorite uh, country in Africa now for everything mining, uh, including Great. uranium. And uh, back to the United States. Uh, Utah, Wyoming, fantastic states across the board, not just for uranium. And then also mm -hmm. not much going on with uranium in Idaho, but I love Idaho as a jurisdiction in the United mm. States, a fantastic state as well. Mm -hmm. um, so I think there's some good stuff going on there. But I want to go back to another company that was mentioned. Sure. Uh, an audience member wanted to know your uh, opinion on, on Appia uh, Energy and, and why you like that company. Appia is uh, it's one of my favorite stories out there, really. Um, and I mean, the, the, the core of it is uh, their director, Tom Drivas. Um, he owns more than half the company. So as soon as you see that type of skin in the game, you know he's taking it, for, taking it seriously. No salary, and he owns 50-something percent. It was 60. They've done a couple of raises, but now it's down in the 50 percentile. Um, and their head geologist is uh, James Sykes who uh, he's actually become a pretty good friend of mine, and he uh, is most famously known for um, discovering the uh, aero deposit for NextGen. Um, amongst other really big deposits, he was part of, uh, part of the team. He developed some 3D mapping technology that helped discover um, uh, the Rough Rider, Rough Rider, I think it was the Rough Rider East deposit for Hathor. He was also part of the Phoenix um, discovery with uh, Denison. You might hear otherwise from other folks, but he was essentially single-handedly responsible for discovering Arrow. He knew right where to drill, and he disobeyed orders to drill deeper 
and that's why Arrow exists because of James Sykes. He's uh, he's a young man. He's uh, very passionate. He's got uranium in his blood. He grew up in Elliott Lake, Saskatchewan. Um, uh, excuse me, Elliott Lake, Ontario, and um, his dad was a uranium miner. And I just love I love the story. Um, and that's those are kind of the main two things that gets me excited about the company. But the other things are that their main properties. Okay, so they have a historical approximately 200 million pounds in Elliott Lake. Whether or not that'll ever be mined, I don't know. There hasn't been mining there in quite a while. It's relatively deep. It's relatively low grade. Back of the napkin, they need 65 to $70 uranium to make it profitable. So if we have a five, six, seven year bull market and the uranium prices soar, it could come into production potentially. But that's not really the reason. Their other properties are in the northeastern Athabasca Basin, actually just outside the basin. And what's unique about these properties is these are the properties that James Sykes wanted to mine and wanted to explore. And so when he left NextGen, um, he took a little break and he had basically the pick of the litter wherever he wanted to go. And he was approached by, by Tom Drivis and basically said, James, what do you want to explore? I'll get the properties. <laughs> and I just love that. I think that's an amazing story. And their properties are phenomenal. They're really, really exciting. And what, what James Sykes wants to do is he wants to, he wants to hit high-grade uranium at surface. He wants to find an arrow at surface. Whether or not he will, I don't know. But one very cool thing about their properties, they have a property called Alsace Lake, which is absolutely world-class rare earths. It's the second highest grade rare earths on the planet. It's turn over a rock with a shovel and it's right there. It's literally on surface. The grades uh, are so high that they can bulk sample. They can sell bulk sampling, which is basically shoveling earth into a truck and shipping it down to the processing uh, center in um, Saskatoon. The profits from bulk sampling are in the range of one to two ounces per ton of gold. So we're talking, we're talking two to three thousand dollars per ton of rare earths, and they already have this processing uh, production of rare earths. They already have this plan in line. The mill in Saskatoon is on board, um, so they have this amazing rare earths property that's that they're drilling as we speak. They're doing a 10x drill program that they did last summer, and I just I feel like that's a nice hedge for uranium um, for the risk of uranium exploration. And I think there's what 15, 15, 16 million dollar market cap. It's just an absolutely tiny company right now. And so for me, I like to be able to speculate on them finding high grade uranium up there just outside the basin, based on uh, having a little bit of confidence uh, from the from the rare earth asset. Right. So I'm, I, yeah, and it's just a great story. I, I I love I love that company. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's some discovery. Uh speculation that occurs and I think folks that are looking at a portfolio uh, a little bit of speculation on discovery is a key part to have and, and we've certainly highlighted that in our work mm -hmm. um, and another piece of that is too is they have that optionality in two places the right. expensive Elliott Lake stuff and then they also have the rare earth uh, optionality mm -hmm. as well and so right. there's it's really an interesting kind of collection of stuff that's kind of happened there and so uh, certainly interesting and and Two of the three companies that uh, we've we've discussed here um, are 
part of our research that are currently mm. in a in a portfolio which you know we'll leave that to the to the members who have that information right but uh i want to ask uh move on to another topic um unless you want to cover another junior uh, i want to ask you about your uranium insider service for a moment tell the audience about your service and do you have any plans for a premium service um I do have plans for a premium service. Um, at this point, I, I have a free newsletter that I, I send out through email um, that you can sign up through the website, and it's basically uh, it's basically me sharing thoughts that are more than 240 characters. Um, if there's something that I feel I'd like to share with with uh, uranium investors and with my audience, that's a little bit more in depth, um, I'll send out an email. It's it's been about one a week, sometimes one every two weeks, sometimes two a week if there's really a lot to say. Um, and so that's, I've, gosh, I've made such amazing friendships and connections through that. It's just been such an awesome experience. Um, I'm working on a premium offering that, uh, will also be kind of the newsletter sort that will include all of my stock picks. It will include, um, a couple of emails a month with macro information, ongoing trade ideas in the uranium. And, uh, I'm also looking into battery metal sectors, precious metals, et cetera. So ongoing trade ideas there. And uh, lastly, part of that service will be um, what I'm calling a sell signals. So kind of a, a real-time uh, up-to-date service that will inform people on, uh, inform investors on selling, when to kind of eye the exits, when it might be good times to trim. And I think that that's something that, that investors and traders have the hardest time with is selling. Um, it's very difficult. It's much more easy to buy and to position yourself. It's very difficult to know when to get out, how much to take off the table. Um, so that's those are the three pieces. It's probably going to be an annual membership. It's probably going to be affordable for essentially anyone um, looking to do that in the next, let's say, few weeks to the next month or so. Um, but for now, anybody can sign up on the free newsletter, and that's growing. And it's been just a great experience to, to share with everybody. And a lot of people have shared with me. I mean. That's the other part that's been so phenomenal about this and just finding myself in this position is like uh, some really wonderful people connect with me and just have some really great ideas coming to me all the time. So it's that's part of the part of the service that I'm doing is has to do with it's I'm almost a conduit for for trade ideas and investment ideas. And, and that's been that's been a wonderful thing to experience and to offer as well. Well, I want to ask you a little bit about exit strategy in just a moment, but before that, um, we had an audience question sure. related to the Uranium Insider Twitter feed. Do you create uh -huh. fake accounts to promote your own tweets, and if so, what is your reasoning for doing so? Oh, gosh. Uh, I know exactly who asked that. Um, no, I never have. I, I never would have a reason to. Um, and I, I know why that he asked this, and I'm happy to uh, answer that. There, I don't know if you remember, there was a, a Twitter user that went by the name Winning Tech. His Twitter handle was Cannonball something. He was a little bit of a live wire, and uh, he was a Swiss man, a former fund manager. He experienced the last bull market. At some point, he had reached out to me. We developed uh, kind of a, a friendship through direct message on Twitter, and he would make these posts that were seemingly pretty outlandish um, that we're doing like a kind of a cash flow analysis, future projected cash flow analysis of, of particular junior companies that he liked. And it was something, you know, they were predictions of 25, 30, 50 X um, in a number of years if we hit a certain price uranium and they go into production. And he would just get lambasted from a, a handful of people 
And sometimes I would, you know, come around and defend him for putting these analyses out. Um, whether or not his analysis was right, at least he was sticking his neck out there, which very few people do. And I also knew that he was in the last bull market. He was aware of valuations and how insane they got. He 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 experienced that for himself, and I think that um, you know one one reason that people didn't like him is because he could not take criticism, not an ounce. And so uh, <laughs> nobody liked him because he was such a hothead. He'd put these analyses out there. If anybody critiqued it, he would just lose it. And I think that's why he eventually either left Twitter or he just finally went too far and they banned him. But I, you know, I, I knew that I had something, something to learn from his experience. And so I kind of set his, let's call it personal misgivings aside and, uh, and, and learned what I could from him during that time. There's a lot of information in those direct messages that I lost that I wish I had screenshotted because he, he was a wealth of knowledge. Uh, but he was a hothead and he didn't know how to tactfully communicate with people. So he created a lot of enemies and I would stick up for him sometimes. And so apparently uh, the person that asked that question you just mentioned thought that maybe that was my account and I was pumping it. But uh, no, I mean, my, my following has been growing pretty consistently and I honestly just try to be uh, genuine and, and clear and accountable. And uh, I mean, shoot, if, if uranium tanks, for reasons nobody's seeing in the next year, I'm I would be happy to come out and say, hey, I was wrong, guys. Sorry, you know, absolutely. I, 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 accountability is important for me. So, um, I've never created uh, uh, multiple accounts and not for the purpose of pumping my own tweets. That's just not something I'm interested in doing. But thank right. you for asking. Thanks for the question. <laughs> well, certainly, if uh, if the sentiment was so good, then then we'd see the stocks rising. But that is not the case. <laughs> well, I want to ask you another question. Yeah, uh, did you yeah. pay attention to, um, share with us who you pay attention to when following the events of this market. Is there any specific names, organizations, or services you'd like to mention that you think are key? Um, yours is absolutely key. Um, the Nuke report that you put together is phenomenal. The research is so deep and, and so good. Um, and, the, and on top of that, the interviews that you've done and put out there have really, really helped inform me, and I'm sure a lot of people, um, uh, you know, whether it's companies they're already invested in that they finally get kind of some face time with the CEOs or uh, speculations they're thinking about investing in. Um, I've been turned on to a couple of companies from your interviews. I've been turned off by a couple of your interviews uh, of a couple of companies. So your research and content is is excellent and everyone should be following it. And if they're listening to this, they probably are. Besides that, uh, Mike Alkins podcast, there's been a few episodes that have been uh, just phenomenally uh, helpful, just super deep, um, really good data from experienced people. Um, Twitter is really an amazing resource. I, 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 I'm so glad that I found it and that I have um, the connections that I do through Twitter. Um, there's maybe five, five to 10 people that I actually follow with notifications on. Um, John Quakes obviously is number one when it comes to macro news, practically in real time. Um, I don't know how he does it, but it's instant. So I don't even try to compete with that on Twitter. It's just, I just turn notifications on for Quakes and I know I'm going to be hit with the most important macro news immediately. Like I mentioned earlier, uh, at SNSU308 is very, very smart. And when he tweets, uh, everyone should listen because it doesn't happen that often. He's not out there. He's not a cheerleader. He's just gonna dump, he'll just he'll just 
I'll just drop that right there and then he'll walk away <laughs> and see what happens. Um, so I strongly recommend people follow him. I'm sure I'm going to miss some. Um, Timothy uh, Chaliri, who works for Mike Alkins Fund, Salsham Cove, he seems to know the fuel cycle in and out, up and down. Um, so he's really good for all things uh, micro when it comes to the uranium industry. Oh, gosh, I know I'm missing so many. Um, Marcelo from L2 Capital, he's a, a really good follow on Twitter. and His podcast, he's had a couple that have been really excellent. His interview with Alex Molyneux from ALX Uranium was really, really um, important for me. That was an excellent one. Those are a few. Um, uh, Lobo Tigre, the uh, due diligence guy, he has a free newsletter that's more broad in the resource uh, spectrum, but he does cover uranium. He's very bullish on uranium. He puts out some really good free content and I'm sure excellent paid content. Man, I'm, I'm sure I'm missing a few, but that's a good start. It's okay. Yeah, well, they'll, they'll certainly forgive us uh, for not catching everybody. Um, and uh, I, I, I so. certainly uh, appreciate your uh, comments uh, towards some of our research. We haven't been uh, perfect, but uh, we've done our best there. And then with, with our uh, Smith Weekly Discussion Show, I think sometimes people miss, and we've gotten some questions about this and a little bit of fireback is, People miss that, you know, just because we have a guest on our show doesn't mean we agree with them or even like them or any of that. Right. Uh, we're right. having guests on our show right. to provide different contents. Sometimes uh, the guests themselves right. destroy themselves. Uh, sometimes they do a fine job, uh, but it doesn't have anything to do with Smith <laughs> Weekly Research's opinion on them. Uh, you know, we're trying to of reach course. on the other side. I think, for example, on the nuclear debate, uh, we try to, if we can, reach on the other side to get people that are really uh, anti-nuclear to come on and share why they are mm -hmm. and not, not specifically mm -hmm. have a hard, a podcast or anything like that, but we're, we're trying to bring on uh, a, a breadth and depth of different perspectives. And I think, you know, our audience knows if we are officially recommending them or, or, you know, they'll notice that in our newsletters and right. portfolios rather than just a show. Right. Alone. Because otherwise I got to be honest with you, if we just have guests on our show that we like, uh, this show would have stopped by now. <laughs> yeah. So, so we just, we don't have, you yep. know, it's hard to find. And on top of that, we have to try to find guests and keep the guest pool going. And it's difficult to get people to come on. And there's lots of guests that we, mm -hmm. we love, but would never come on our show just mm -hmm. because we don't have near the audience that they would require. Um, so, you know, right. that's, that's one of the issues. Um, so we try to bring on different guests from different areas and try to cover different parts and I yes. think that's important for the audience to remember. Yes. So yes. Uh, I oh, I've, I, there's a couple I missed. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Malcolm. Uh, Malcolm Rawlingson is an, is an absolute follow. He's uh, retired uh, from the nuclear, uh, nuclear engineer and he posts often and he's very accessible. I've had private conversations with him. Excellent. Just really good stuff. Yeah, I I, Sorry to uh, Go ahead. <laughs> I remember an, an interview uh, he did with Mike Alkin. Uh, that was a pleasant interview, and uh, um, it's one of the guests that's uh, probably on our list here, actually. Uh, ha we haven't worked through yet to maybe ask, but he's been on Mike's show, certainly, and, and he would be an interesting guy to have back on to have more discussion. I want to move on mm. to exit strategy. So when the bull yes. market gets underway, <clears throat> really confirmed in there and, and going and we're we're getting getting up there and, and things have changed uh, significantly in the sector what are your ideas for an exit strategy and what would you 
point retail investors to look at as part of their exit? The thing that I've I've already tried to hammer home a number of times um, in my in my email newsletter, and that I think is incredibly important for um, investors is to to treat their positions individually, because all of the stocks that they're holding are not going to act. They're not going to move in lockstep, and so the macro is important, and I'll, I'll touch on that in a second. But each and treat all your your positions individually. This is one reason why I personally don't like to over diversify. I, I like to have around 10 positions total in my fundamental investing portfolio because it's much easier to manage. And um, if you look at uranium price charts, and if you look at uh, historical charts for some of the few players that were uh, that really benefited from the last bull market, Denison, um, Laramide was there, um, obviously Paladin, um, Cameco. You can see that they they all generally went up pretty violently, but their charts were pretty different. Some of them had a lot more pullbacks than others. Denison, for example, had from the point that the bull market started, let's say the first MacArthur River flood in uh, 03, um, or we can even take it to 04, and when the the funds started purchasing. You can see that Denison had, I think it was four pullbacks of close to 50% between the beginning and the end of the bull market. And so we can all kind of expect similar types of pullbacks along the way. And it's important to think about this now before they're happening so you know what your plan is when they do. Um, if you're going to pick a certain level or a certain macro event to exit or to start to peel the position off, then you should, probably should be holding through those pullbacks. If you're going to swing trade those, then you should be looking at moving averages and make, make, your, make your decisions now what you plan to do with that volatility because it's going to happen for sure. Another thing on that note, as far as the run up with juniors, juniors are generally much more illiquid. I didn't mention this before. And that's essentially, liquidity is you know the, the number of shares traded on a daily basis. And if you hold a full position in a junior all the way to top and expect to dump everything, uh, especially a large position along with everyone else perfectly at the top and expect those sell orders to, to uh, fill, um, you probably have another thing coming. And so it's important to peel some off on the way up with juniors specifically. If, if it's we're talking about Cameco, if we're talking about the ETFs or, or the yellow cakes, um, you might have an easier easier uh, time of, of dumping a large position all in one fell swoop. That's not my plan um, because I'm mostly in juniors. So um, I'll be peeling off at different levels on the way up just so that I, I can reduce essentially the amount of stress of holding a really big position near the top. As far as the macro goes, uh, so each individual position, watch those charts, make a call on when the stock, let's say, mo loses a certain lo uh, moving average, um, when the relative strength, strength index hits a certain low, whatever it might be, you can choose your own points um, on when you're going to exit um, the rest of your position if you've trimmed or a full position. Um, and as far as the macro goes, I think the, the biggest things to look for are um, one, the long-term price falling below the spot price. And so that essentially signifies that um, utilities are signing contracts below the price of spot because they're expecting price to fall. And that's not the only thing, but that's an important thing. The other thing, obviously, would be any type of macro news that affects the demand side. That could be a black swan event, while it might not immediately kill the market. Um, if it affects the demand side, in the case of Japan, with 52 reactors coming offline in short order, um, that's going to hurt the market. And 
um, that's probably a time to look for the exits. So those are two things to keep in mind. And then just the general, I, I'll be watching the moving averages of um, especially something like uranium participation that for the most part follows the spot price. So th those are things that I'll be looking for, the exits. But long-term dropping below uh, spot is, is a, a pretty big indicator. Um, news of, of yellow cake fund and similar funds um, selling uranium is not necessarily indicative of the top, but I'm going to start kind of eyeing the market closer when I hear about that news. I'm not, honestly, I'm, I, I'm not sure what to make of SWU on the way up in this market because the conversion method is different. Excuse me, the enrichment method is different. Um, and so the, the, the actual cost of enrichment is a fraction of what it was in the last market. So I don't know if how high, I don't know how high SWU is going to go, where it's going to cap out and, and the importance of that. Um, in the market. I'll, I'll admit that I don't know that because of the, the different enriching cost. But as far as the exit signs, long-term dropping below spot is a big one. And then keep an eye on on the charts themselves of all of your positions would be my, and that's what I'm, I'll be planning to do. I think that's a great, uh, I think hopefully people took notes. I think those are all pieces that you need to have on the wall to be watching for. I think that's a, a good set of uh, pieces to look at and, and if you've got all of those uh, on the wall you're you're getting pretty close to having a, a in my view a pretty complete picture on on what to be looking mm. for so justin uh what yeah. is the best way for the audience to connect with you they can reach me um through email uraniuminsider at gmail.com directly um uh sign up for my my free newsletter through uraniuminsider.com and i'm pretty darn accessible through twitter it's just at uraniuminsider I'm, I'm on there pretty much daily. Uh, I try to answer direct messages as, as quickly as I can and be as helpful as I can. So yeah, Twitter or email, I tend to respond actually more quickly through Twitter than email, but um, the email I, I'm reaching, I'm not quite an information overload here, but it's starting to push it. <laughs> so uh, Twitter is usually quicker, um, but if you're not on Twitter, email is perfectly fine. Uraniuminsider at gmail.com. Justin, thank you for sharing your views and approach to the uranium market, and uh, good luck over at Uranium Insider. Thank you so much for having me, Andrew. I really appreciate it. It's been a pleasure.